pretty funny for me as well because um, we started a, commu- a huge community of people who built robotics AI against potential uh, epidemics but more kind of malaria in Africa or some kind of similar in just a few months after that actual epidemic happened in the whole yeah. world and we okay yes yeah, so we, we plan to talk about this but actually the thought that it's just a potential uh, thing but not reality so and and another strange thing that uh, how many things didn't work I mean just few months before we talk about AI as a prediction uh, for an epidemic AI for smart cities AI for notification for citizens so we thought that we have so many technologies which will help us to deal with potential uh, danger situation in cities but it didn't work <laughs> so we have so many startups and they're not so efficient and we need to update it our approach okay So initially, uh, we have met around 2015, and you were a fellow of Lisbon Challenge, uh, one of the best program in Europe, in my opinion. And at this period, you worked on Remedy Glove, Interactive Glove, where it helped a musician create more interactive experiences for people. And I would love to know, and I would love you share with uh, our listeners how you became passionate about hardware about uh, physical devices because many people go to the uh, startups in order to build apps platforms because it's easy it's not challenging yeah. and you come up with much more uh, comprehensive thing which connect uh, different kind of audiences musicians creators and people who listen to art and participate in artistic work so let me t- uh, t- tell you about your journey yeah sure I mean, uh, taking consideration that my background is music in general. So I've always been studying in my life, you know, engineering and management and business and all that stuff. But I've always been extremely passionate about music and electronic music production in particular. And uh, making music with a computer, with, with a laptop, basically involves using software that emulates hardware. So you spend all the time working with knobs, with faders, and you know, with all little things which are actually you know, uh, a software version of something that is hardware. During my, my career, I was quite young, I've had the, the luck of uh, doing an internship in a company that was very much about music hardware called Livid Instruments. They were making very robust hardware for DJ and electronic music producers. And I think, I believe that that was kind of like my game-changing experience in that perspective. Because I, for the first time, I had the chance to interact with hardware, understand what was the magic behind any type of hardware that I have ever had uh, uh, the opportunity to work with. And I kind of, you know, really uh, got to feel the feeling of manipulating real stuff to express yourself. And I believe that that's really unreplicable. Don't get me wrong. I'm a huge fan of software. I use music software all the time. The most of my time I use music software to make music. But the feeling that you have, the feeling that hardware can give you when you're actually touching something, when you're actually manipulating a sound with a physical action, I think that that's unreplicable. And that's kind of like what happened. I, you know, I figured it out. I started understanding a little bit about the technology behind it, and that made me made me fall in love with with the idea of making hardware. And so now it's five years that I'm into hardware technology in on different aspects. But yeah, that's that's where that's where the passion started. 
Uh, currently, we have an interesting situation that uh, art itself and cre uh, uh, creative works uh, became extremely diverse. We have uh, some yeah. kind of a popular culture, but uh, many indie creatives yeah. who create sometimes even, even SMR on YouTube or some specific concerts um, and experiment with the way how to interact with people. Um, if we're talking about Remedy, what type of creators and artists typically uh, use it? Yeah, yeah. so in terms of Remedy, the, the, the experience with Remedy taught me a lot of things. And so I learned many things. One of them is always one of the mistakes that I have done, honestly, as, as an entrepreneur. Uh, because basically, um, I thought when we started with the Remedy that the Remedy Glove, the Remedy T8, could have been an instrument, a device for anyone, for anyone who would have wanted to approach music creation. But that was not the real case. That was not the real case because it's it's a piece of technology that requires a little bit of background knowledge of music in general, of electronic music and MIDI. MIDI is a very uh, common protocol for communication between hardware and software in the music world. So it, it's not a product for anyone. If you want to approach music in a very easy way, there are better ways to do it. And so that's what we kind of figured out with the, eventually is that re, uh, the Remedy T8 is a wonderful solution for performers and producers who are looking to express themselves both in studio and on stage in a very physical way. And that's kind of like the type of creators that we still have in our portfolio, say. We have a band in particular, the, the, they made a project, it's called Spime. I also really encourage you to check it out. And they have recorded an entire album using the Remedy T8. So basically they stay in the studio and they take advantage of the strong physicality of the device of the, of the Remedy T8 itself in the sense that they can literally move their body and their hands, even, sometimes even randomly, and that triggers and manipulates the sound in a multi-dimensional way, which is absolutely unaccessible with the most of the other instruments. And it's also incredibly physical. When I say physical, imagine really to be wearing a glove. So that's literally re replicating the movements of your, of your hand. So you are not adapting yourself to an external hardware, but the hardware is adapting to yourself. So that's, that's kind of like the niche of artists that we have found who really see the value of Remedy in that, in that, regard, in that regard, in the fact of being able to physically ex express themselves. Let's talk about uh, music technology and experiences, because I believe currently we have a significant shift from the um, how uh, that the art is a more content and art is an experience, how people feel it and thinking about that. Um, I believe COVID-19 can significantly affect our world because uh, it's not only push people learn remotely, but it also push artists uh, create remote or virtual uh, concerts. In your opinion, since you communicate with many artists and creators, how do you think, uh, will we see some kind of shift of, uh, with more virtual artists, people who uh, try to create more uh, com comprehensive virtual digital experiences, even without uh, physical experiences or the physical experiences is just different thing or just a part of the whole picture. How do you see how it, does it involve? Yeah, yeah, I believe that, you know, this enormous event that is affecting all humanity will certainly have also some effects on the industry of events worldwide. Uh, there are a couple of things to say. Number one, I believe that real concerts, concerts in real life, so big venues, people, the artists singing and performing in front of people in the real world, the, the real contact, the real interaction with fans, that is not going away. And I believe that humanity, young people, not necessarily just young people, but anyone who, who likes concerts is literally counting seconds until the moment we will be able to have real concerts again. So concerts will come back and they will always be there. I don't see them as something that might you know, disappear because of their, their, their uniqueness and, and really the relationship that you can create between fans and audience. On the other hand, there's always been you know, a very interesting niche of companies working on the concept of virtual events. Uh, until a few months ago, they were you know, kind of like uh, doing interesting stuff 
but still looking for their spot in the world because you know to be honest until a few months ago the idea of attending an event through a laptop or through a phone literally felt as you know absolutely uh, uncomparable to what a real event is so it kind of like felt the geek uh, as the geek alternative to something which in the real world is much better but this pandemic has shown us how you know, this, this whole concept, this whole idea of everybody moving around, the masses of people, all these enormous flow of people and, uh, and uh, you know, anything that moves just in order for, for a concert to happen, this is showing us that this is not necessarily good. So I believe that now through this opportunity, very interesting companies like, for example, The Wave VR, who that is a wonderful company, you know, delivering concerts uh, through virtual reality, now they are gaining their place in the entertainment industry because so many more people will at this time have their first contact with these companies they will experience their first live event live virtual event or not necessarily in vr but just attending through through a screen and so they will basically you know cut off a little niche of the market that they will keep for themselves because like everything, there are pros and cons. I believe that the real concert is absolutely, you know, uncomparable with any other, any other virtual virtual alternative. But on the other hand, imagine how interesting can be also the relationship when you make some sort of like, you know, intimate event with your, you know, favorite artist. That, for example, can host a virtual show for just a selected amount of users that then can potentially even chat with the artist or like comment on what the artist is doing. So, you know. It's, it's happening. It's happening. And thanks to these, there will be an acceleration, basically, in how virtual events and uh, remote events find their place in the entertainment industry. Uh, there is another trend that I see. It's called AI influencer. It's when artists create some kind of a character, a non-existent personality on Instagram. Uh, YouTube and even create a concert for this personality. There is an artist from Japan. Uh, there is a, another robotics girl who exists only on Instagram or YouTube. Yeah. Um, based on your experience, is it really kind of a trend in today entertainment or just experiment and there is no any momentum? That's a very good one. I believe that the idea of artists behind the artist has always been very charming and fascinating in the sense that if you think about like there, there have been bands and music projects where like you we have never known who's behind them like from from the gorillas to banksy or like other bands you know the idea of this group this band this name it's a brand in the end where we don't know who's behind it is always very fascinating because you know it gives a fan one more reason to be intrigued by the artist is the question is who actually is the artist so that's definitely interesting the way I, I honestly think that like this uh, this definition of the AI influencer, I personally think is a little bit misleading to be honest. Because what I believe that we will see in the next decade is a real um, revolution in the sense that we might really see the first AI artist, but in the sense that it's literally AI. It's not like a human, you know creating a project and then being hidden behind that name, which is, you know, the type of influencers that you were describing. I think that we might we might see with our eyes some real AI artists burning in the sense that like we might see some algorithms producing music and producing, you know, work of arts and becoming famous and becoming interesting for what they do because AI has already proven to be able to generate creative works. And I have to say, you know, from my perspective, this is terrible to say because I'm, I believe that I'm a quite creative people. I'm always, always been into music and I'm part of the creative community. And it's hard to admit that robots might take our place. And I don't think that they will ever do. But when we say AI influencers, I think it will make more sense to use that word to define, you know, the next flow of artists that might come in the next 10 to 20 years, which are literally robots creating stuff, perhaps like putting together pieces of music for around the world. Like AI is able to do and perform things that us 
as single humans will never be able to do. AI might take pieces of songs which have something in common from the entire world database in a second and put them together in a brand new track, which is the result of like the combination of 10,000 tracks that had just something specifically, specifically in common. And that's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see a new movement of art which is merged between human and robotics. And perhaps at some point it will be just robotics in the sense that it will be just performed by AI. There are many cases already of AI performing art. And again, it sounds kind of creepy because we always felt as humans that like the one big difference between us and, and machines is that we are creative, machines are not. But unfortunately, AI has proven that this is not that this is not necessarily true. AI is very well designed and able to put together multiple inputs and create a brand new output, which ultimately is what we do as humans when we're creative. So that's that that would be my answer. I wouldn't really I I don't think there's anything that new in the today's current concept of AI influencer in the sense that like, you know, creating a project that has a different name from the name of the actual artist is a thing that is a thing that we have already seen for decades. Uh, what I believe though, is that we'll see something completely new in the next couple of decades. Uh, currently, uh, we see another thing, uh, specifically on platforms uh, on like YouTube, then uh, people uh, starting to create what we call edutainment is a kind of combination of art, creativity, of education. So I would love to ask you how we could use hardware, devices, and tools in order to turn concerts into some kind of a, sometimes even maybe educational or inspirational events. And do you see some kind of an artist in today, um, art, uh, creativity world, then would love to create such type of uh, concerts and events? Yeah. Uh, again, I think this uh, sort of connects to what we were saying earlier. The, the idea of like this remote connection opens up the possibility to a better channel of communication between the attendees and the host of the event. And this obviously opens the door to some interactions that you know can lead to something which is close closer to education in the sense that like the host can perhaps you know when the host is responding to questions when the host is while playing for example you know explaining some 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 tricks some tips about what they're doing you know that's definitely something new and something super interesting on the other hand what i believe is that you know there's a there probably will be a new wave of you know robotics and and pieces of hardware or not necessarily of like of software in general it's not even a new wave it's something that is already happening which is uh, also able to learn uh, to teach stuff to people that's a thing that is happening like scribit for example is a is a robot that you install on, on the wall of your house very easily and then when you start drawing you know the content is totally up to you. And if you are looking for some type of content, which is somehow educational, you know, you're totally allowed to do it. We also have like dedicated collections, which are about, you know, educational content. And and that's a thing that is, is already there, but I think it's, it's just going to grow because also one other thing that I believe, you know, spending so much time home lately has taught us is that, you know, when you have time, you want to learn. You want to learn new stuff. You want to you want your your brain to be stimulated by new things. You want to intercept new potential inventions, or just like uh, you know to get to know a little bit more about that subject or that other subject. And so, in general, I think that educational technologies in all forms, from hardware to software, are will have some wonderful years ahead for sure. Uh, since you're actively uh, communicated with both artists and have a, uh, a significant amount of statistics related to music, do you have some kind of a list how people would love to feel artists? I mean, is there some kind of a list of a, uh, must experiences? So we, we would love to talk artists, we would love to listen artists, we would love to watch artists, maybe smell artists. So what kind of a feelings and experiences people would love to have in 2020 you mean in the interaction basically between fun and artists yes, like yes. what what is the new yeah i believe that the the digital revolution the internet revolution the social media revolution has shown us that 
you know, fans are more than willing and open to discover what's behind the scenes in the sense that, you know, artists are making music, for example, that's their product, but then fans are eager to discover what's their real life like, you know, to get to know their, their, their everyday life, their, you know, the, the, the small things that they do, you know, the, 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 the way that they have their breakfast from what they eat for dinner from their girlfriend, their boyfriend and so on. And so I believe that, you know, one thing that has already been happening now is the fact that like, you know, all fans want to want to get to know more about the life of, of their of their favorite artists. So that's definitely a big trend. It's already happening. And and social media have been, you know, the perfect place, the perfect flat platform for that to happen. But what I believe will come next is actually a concept that I would call remix, although it you know, applies to, to music, but it can apply also to other forms of art, is the fact that, you know, fans at some point will want to be able to edit the stuff that their, that their favorite artists make. The interaction should get to a point where fans can have a can give a contribution in the creative process of their favorite artist. There are already some platforms working towards that direction, but I think that that's the next frontier. Imagine if you were a big fan, you know, of, I don't know, say any artist might be DJ Tiesto, for example, and you were able to contribute somehow to a draft of an idea that he has that might potentially become a track. You know, I, I have been theorizing lately about uh, a social media platform for music creation where basically people upload loops, for example. And imagine if Tiesto was, you know, uh, uploading just a loop. It, it's a scratch. It, it's an idea just of a potential track. And then people might be contributing to that. And then you would go and create what I would call a loop chain, you know, that reminds somehow of the concept of a blockchain, you know. And so by following throughout that loop chain, then you would be able to discover what's the story of that song and how that has taken shape. But that hasn't been only, uh, you know, the result of one person thinking, but that has been the result of multiple people interacting with each other. So that's, I believe, that I believe can be, you know, the next real big thing in, in art in general is the fact of, you know, involving your fan base in your creative process but doing it for real through technology. That's a big step ahead. And I'm more than sure that, you know, fans are eager to do that. Maybe in different ways, you know, some of them might be contributing like literally by writing a new riff with a guitar, but some other might be contributing just by saying what they like or what they don't. You know, there are so many synergies and dynamics that can be created in that process that I believe can be very, very interesting and can write a new chapter in the in the world of, of, of artistic creation for the next decades. Uh, you just started an important topic then uh, people, uh, listeners and artists uh, became a part of some kind of a chain of creation. Uh, in 20 uh, or seven, uh, such artists like Nine Inch Nails started to share uh, open projects then they just provide audience with opportunity to co-create uh, content. So we just share uh, open source of the initial tracks and people could create uh, remixes and a version. So it, it was available for everyone, not only DJs, but for everyone. So do you think that currently we have a trend then artists and listeners became uh, uh, equal co-creators? And we don't have a situation then we have an artist as the only one leader in, in art and passive observers, but more kind of a, a different levels of co-creation. And artists try to involve people more and more for some kind of an element of um, community-driven uh, content and yep. people-created uh, uh, stuff. Yeah, I believe that we are going in that direction and as you said like that's an example that comes from more than 20 30 years ago so you know it's definitely not a, a brand new concept it's a thing that on which artists and you know the artistic community has been thinking and developing concepts for decades already what i see though is that you know technology has to follow up at some point technology has to give the opportunity for this to happen but this should happen like 
smoothly for this to be real in the sense that, you know, if the process of co-creation is complex, the result will be that just a few people will be able to interact and the result will be, yes, co-creation, but, you know, out of the pyramid of people that might contribute, only just a few people at the top of the pyramid that have access to certain tools will be able to contribute. So I believe that technology plays a fundamental role in defining how these trend of interaction, these, you know, uh, bringing closer the artist and the audience process uh, will happen. Um, yeah, so technology is definitely the one fundamental element for this to happen. But uh, but ultimately, you know, you know, this will depend on the artist's personality. So I don't think, personally, I don't think that this will reshape the entire industry in the sense that you will have all of the artists following the co-creation path when they want to publish their new album or anything like that. You know, this will become one of the ways they have to interact and involve their audience and might also become one way, you know, to perhaps cover a moment in their career where they're not feeling necessarily incredibly inspired. Imagine for an artist who is having perhaps like a wonderful career, but is, you know, going through what they call the blank sheet uh, paranoia, you know, which which happens is quite common. You know, mostly in, in some artist's career, you have a peak, a moment where, you know, your songs, your creations are going very well. They're also being able to turn your dream into a job. And then you find yourself all of a sudden right there in front of a white sheet and you're like, oh, my God, I have no more ideas. How, how, where can I get new ideas from? And, you know, this can definitely become a way to re-trigger and restart your brain as a creative person. And what's better than doing that by involving your own fans, by involving your own uh, community? That I see that as just like incredibly positive. But again, I don't think it will be, you know, just a new standard. I think it will become a new tool. It will become a new process that certain artists will apply and maybe even certain music labels might apply because let's not forget that like in, in the music industry, you know, music labels are the entities that have been shaken the most in the last couple of decades, you know, because of the whole digital revolution. So their role in the music industry is kind of like redefining now. They're redefining the, the place where they stay between the artist and the fan base. And perhaps, you know, they can play a role in that as well. They can be, you know, the ones perhaps like, you know, uh, connecting an artist to a pool of ideas that came out of a community. You know, that can happen. You know, there might be uh, uh, X amount of people that have like been working on a loop and like scratching up some ideas. But then, you know, there's there, there's an artist missing because there's someone that has to be able to take the lead on that project, on those ideas, put them together and create a store around it. And the labels might be able to do that. And imagine like how many interesting synergies and stories might happen and might take place through through these new, these new processes and technologies. Um, I have a little secret. I have a dream to create a significant uh, technology-driven show with different elements of involvement of ex different experiences. So I would love to ask you as an inventor, who, uh, what artist or what creator was your inspiration and uh, which artist you consider the most creative in terms of using of digital technology, uh, maybe some kind of tools uh, during concerts? Could you, could, uh, there, there is someone you could recommend as an inspiration in technology way? Yeah, there, there, there are, there are so many. It's it's very hard for me, honestly, to make a selection, as you can imagine. But obviously, you know, you go from the Pink Floyd in seventies that were experimenting, like with, you know, I think probably the the, the most exciting moment for music in general were the seventies and the eighties when you know synthesizers and electronic sounds started becoming a thing. If if I were to choose a moment of the last century where I would like to be uh, to have the opportunity to live, that would, that would definitely be the 70s and the 80s. Because imagine, like, everyone was just, everyone was, you know, using the classical instruments, like from the, the guitar to the piano to the to the strings to make music to, to, to the drums, and everything, you know, and it was okay. Obviously, they were making incredible music already. But at some point, some people came out 
with you know the MOOC synthesizer and other products like that. And at some point, our ears as, as listeners just became used to listen to these sounds which were produced by electronics, which you know to us sounds obvious today because you know it's a thing that we're totally used to. But imagine what it felt like in the 70s for the first time to to hear new sounds literally new sounds sounds that didn't exist before and that's where that's the moment where i wish i was there to be honest and the artists that you know really mm, contributed to that are pink floyd jean-michel jarre and, and and many other like big names of that period of time that started using synthesizers massively if you go and look at you know the artists that have had the the biggest impact on on my career and the way i I look at, you know, you need to consider that I come from a strongly DJ background. So when I was younger, I was very much into following, you know, other DJs and, and DJs have a very particular type of gear when they make their stuff and their shows. So some artists that have been particularly influential to me are, for example, from Richie Hotting to Nicholas Jar who have been, you know, uh, introducing digital technologies basically on stage. Mostly Richie Houghton was one of the first ones to introduce digital technology on, on stage in the sense of, uh, you know, using a laptop when, when making a DJ set. But I, and, and I say Nicholas Jar because uh, he's a guy, he's also, he's my age and uh, he's one of my favorite artists right now. And I will never forget when he made this live show in New York in 2000 and I guess, something like 11, and he was playing with one of the instruments, one of the controllers that were made by the company that I was working at for my first uh, for my first uh, internship, and he was also using a radio, just a, a normal ghetto blaster, and for, from time to time during the live set, he was just turning on the volume of that radio to push some like random speaking voices within his DJ set, you know, so I think there are so many names out there who have been contributed to, to the way that I, you know, approach music uh, performance and creation today. But everything comes ultimately to how can you use technology to your advantage and how can you also improvise by putting that little bit of an ingredient, which is unexpected, which is something different from like the others have been doing. And this is kind of like also what I've been pursuing when inventing the Remedy T8. You know, how can I bring to stage something that can, you know, be distinguishable recognizable and can, you know, bring even more personality to my show. Uh, you mentioned interesting point. You mentioned that one of the most fascinating moments in music industry was about 70s and uh, 80s. And basically, I feel that we have some kind of comeback in this period, even in technological way. I mean, uh, some brand just uh, made a replication of a mini MOOC synthesizer, uh, as I know, there is also planned uh, um, Prophecy uh, uh, 5 synthesizer in our analog synthesizer from the past, which uh, used by artists like Gary Newman, David Bowie, and some uh, pioneers of electronic music. So um, do you feel that in technology we have some kind of idea to connect the dots of it today uh, technology opportunity, uh, interface, and maybe design thinking with the feeling and experiences from the past in order to create the whole picture of a feeling for people and listeners today. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think like the answer is definitely yes, in the sense that, you know, both the newest and the oldest technology influence the way that the the next technology is built for sure there's the heritage the heritage on one side and there's the newest trend on the other and then you try to combine and something else new comes out that's for sure but on the other hand i believe that you know one of the reasons why we see these sort of comeback to 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 the technologies of the 70s and the 80s is due to these i believe you know when a thing is 10 years old 15 years old it feels old when a thing is 30, 40 years old, it feels cool because it's past, because it's vintage, because it becomes, you know, something from another time. And I think that that's, you know, what initially has been happening, for example, with the vinyl, you know, the vinyl, the vinyl was 
was given for dead as a, as, a, as, a, as a piece of the music industry. People were looking at vinyl like, hey, you remember vinyl? Vinyl didn't make any sense. It was uncomfortable. Look at CDs, then look at, you know, look at cassettes, then look at CDs, then look at MP3s. And vinyl felt like, okay, it's over. And then look at what's happening now. A niche within the music industry is finding in a such an old and vintage tool for music reproduction, you know, a way to sort of like mirror themselves in the respect also of the technology that came came from the past. And this is happening on the same at the same on the same way also for music production tools like uh, from for synthesizers and so on. But to be honest, I believe that you know. The MOOC synthesizers and all the prophets, all those you know magnificent synthesizers that have been you know so popular in the 70s, they have never gone away. They have always been there. Artist, artists and, mu- and musicians have always been using them. The only difference is that you know they have had a peak in popularity when they came out, and then sort of like they were just a little bit less mainstream, but. I am ready to bet that if you ask any music, uh, any music artist in the 2000s or in the 90s what they thought about the MOOC synthesizers or what they thought, thought about the Prophet, they would have told you, this is an incredible machine and I need it in my gear because it will likely never go away. But this comes like, because they, they, they're just there and they will stay probably there forever. I mean, at this point today, they have they have more almost 50 years of history, so they will stay there. They're just they they are instruments that have found their place in the world, you know. Uh, however, the funny thing about electronic music in general, like for example, about synthesizers, which I put under the umbrella of the electronic music industry, is that you know they become super popular, so they're also part of the pop music industry. They're we all know them as a sound. We are all we all are familiar with them. But consider that they're electronic, you know, we know, at least, you know, people who are part of the of the industry, of the innovation industry in general, we know that they might be replaced at some point. You know, something might happen at some point for which, like, they all of a sudden become felt and perceived as bulky, slow, and for some reason, something new comes out that, you know, takes them away, and it feels like, look, here's the new synthesizer, you know, and everyone goes to the new synthesizer because this new synthesizer, for example, has, you know, multiple dimensions of, expre- of expression and will make feel all of the sounds from, you know, the, the MOOC synthesizer just old and, and stupid. You know, we know that this might happen. But even if this will happen, you know, we will never throw away the MOOC synthesizer. It will just stay there. But we know that this, for example, will never happen to, with acoustic instruments. You know, the guitar will never be replaced because it's been away, it's been around for so long. You know, it will never come a guitar that will make the real guitar feel old and bulky. You know, the guitar is there and will stay. And we know that for sure because it's part of our culture. Perhaps like synthesizer haven't, haven't been around for enough to be literally part, uh, literally part of, of human culture. But I think that, however, they're really close to that point. Anyways, we know that one day something might happen in technology, you know, something with transistors, something with the way that we, you know, make stuff to oscillate that would just make the current synthesizer feel old. We'll see. Yes, uh, and since you mentioned uh, Mini Mook, uh, I I don't know whether you were inspired by with work because in the beginning of our talk you mentioned then you created a remedy as an instrument, not just a device, not just some kind of a interesting thing to contribute your concert, but as an instrument. And I heard from many artists who say we feel that Mini Mook is an instrument. He's just a musical in nature, and that's why it was used across the different genre, pop music, electronic, rock music, because it always has some kind of a space for the creativity of, of creators. So it has a, some basic functionality, and the rest is up to you. Experiment as you want in the way how you would love to create it. So create your own style, your 
own uh, way express your creativity. And I believe uh, minimal creators need to create some kind of a curse uh, for uh, today creators of synthesizers because today is a bit more about just a box with sound and effects, but a bit less as an instrument that you have a particular design and feeling how you use different oscillators and elements of uh, interface it was extremely cool. I've tried it. <laughs> I'm a musician, yeah, so I, I know it. It's, it's, it's the whole feeling is amazing and inspired you to create something experiment this, this thing with thing is so cool and the same for instance with the cork ms uh, 12 it was amazing as well so some classic thing from the past so do you think what we need some kind of a curses in design thinking for a uh, instrument uh, manufacturers <laughs> <laughs> to bring yeah. this inspiration yeah, I think that would be amazing. That would be amazing for sure. Yeah, I think like basically the difference between probably probably the difference between device and instrument stays in the fact that like a device is a device independently from the way it's used. An instrument is an instrument. An instrument brings me to the music world, right? If I think about an instrument, it means that this is a device designed for musicians. And probably you get to be called an instrument only when you have gained enough respect in the artistic community <laughs> to be called so um but yeah no I, I don't know like i don't think i'll be honest like, i am i am a big fan of you know any form of creativity as long as you know it makes creativity more accessible on one hand but you know doesn't necessarily depress creativity in, in in some sort so as long as you know creativity is more accessible i think this is good for humanity on a broader perspective so i don't think that anyone is using any instrument in the wrong way you know what i mean like i don't think that there is a wrong way to use a moog synthesizer there's a wrong way in the sense that like if you are not able to produce anything which is appealing for the world out there, you know, no one will just be able or willing to listen to you. And that's kind of like, you know, the filter that applies to, to any form of creation, because in the end, creativity obviously is depending and strongly, uh, say, attached to what we feel inside. It's a product of our inner self. But in the end, it's strongly dependent on, on the reaction that, that the world, that, that anyone you know, uh, in in the outside, uh, outside from ourselves, will have uh, uh, you know towards our our creation. But yeah, I think um, I mean to go back to that question. Yes, I believe you know that some uh, design thinking, some course, like someone who teaches like how to use you know analog synthesizers will be incredibly interesting, and I would really encourage to do it because also. By learning how analog synthesizers work, for example, you also get to learn something about electronic in general, which is a topic that I think is very important for our generation and for the next generations to come to know and to understand, which is really at the basis, at the, it's really the basic of like how any device we have works. Uh, but on the other hand, I always encourage anyone to approach creativity. So I wouldn't really, you know, uh, see any category of people using, you know, instruments in the wrong way. I'm just like, you know, if it's the wrong way, you know, people will not listen. But even if it's wrong, I mean, who cares? If you have fun, if you enjoy that, just do it. It's it's totally fine to me. You know what I mean? Uh, let's talk about crowdsourcing. Uh, currently, um, I see interesting tendency that many teams in technology, in sometimes in some cases even biotech, try to tap uh, alternative ways of funding. And I specifically see it in creative space uh, when people create devices using crowdsourcing. As far as I know, you mostly uh, crowdsource uh, money for a remedy, and you're also known as a person who actively um, evangelize with approach to uh, fund particular technologies. So I would love to ask you, uh, could you tell us about this journey? How is it difficult to get money from crowdsourcing nowadays? And uh, what would you recommend to other teams in similar space who build particular devices, maybe creative stuff? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I believe that uh, yeah, crowdsourcing money in the sense of crowdfunding is a wonderful tool to bring your idea to 
to reality, to make them real. To because uh, let's be honest, like at some point when you have an idea on scratch, it's it might be hard, you know, to convince an investor. It might be hard to fund it yourself and so on. So crowdfunding is a wonderful way way to validate an idea, validate just the idea, not the business. Let's keep it in mind to validate an idea and to start building your community. And having a community in the end is what makes a difference for the future success of a business. So yeah, I advise companies with their crowdfunding right now. So that's that's one of the things that I do. And um, and the advice I give is that when you approach crowdfunding, you always have to uh, basically split your reach. So the amount of people that you can reach in three categories. So a number one, you have your current community. Your current community might be populated by your family, your friends, you know, the people you met at your startup accelerator, you know, anyone that you already have the email of, basically, you know, your own own community, the people that know you. And with these people, the number one thing to do is to engage. You must be engaged, you must make them feel engaged, and you must make them feel part of your project as much as possible. Then you have a second layer of your reach which is the community of the platform where you will be launching. Might be Kickstarter, might be Indiegogo, right? And there, you know, your reach potentially uh, expands a lot because the amount of people that visit Kickstarter or Indiegogo every day is quite big. So if you're launching a campaign there, you know, it's definitely important to be able to speak with that, with that part of, of the audience. And there, the number one thing that I think is most important is the credibility. Because when you land on, on uh, when you're talking with a community of people who are on Indiegogo and Kickstarter, it means that you're talking with people who are familiar with crowdfunding somehow. And so they're familiar also with what are the issues that founders often find across their way when they're making, when they're crowdfunding something and when they want to bring like, for example, a new piece or hard, of hardware on, on the market. So that's where, that's the people where you have to be really credible, credible with them and also credible with the people who are handling those platforms. So with the people who are working at Kickstarter or the people who are working on Indiegogo, because you know, you, you want to be as credible as possible to them because they might end up endorsing you, meaning that you might be one of the projects they love. You might, you might end up in their newsletter, but you will never do that if you're not 100% credible. And then number third, there's the rest of the world. The rest of the world is basically the people that you can end up having funding, you know, your campaign, but they have never uh, um, pledged in any other campaigns. So the first time backer people who are millions of people potentially, and you can reach them through social media. And in that case, you know, the, the, the thing that really matters the most is a combination between the excitement, because you must really make them feel excited for this new incredible innovation you're bringing, but as well, you must be very, very credible because although these are people who are pledging for just for the first time, you know, they will have in their decision, pro their decision process, they will have a moment where they're like, should I trust these guys? Like, are they going to deliver? Like, you know, what's, what's the story behind this thing? So that's kind of like my very first recommendation is like, try to lay down these three communities, put them on a spreadsheet. I also have created models of, for that, which are very helpful when, when you're approaching a campaign and you need to understand what is your reach because when you have community one, your people, community two, the Kickstarter, Indiegogo community, and community three, the outer world, and you know pretty much how much it costs you, and this is a little bit of marketing science, you know, to add a new people to each of these community, then you can sort of like make a projection, um, a projection on how many out of all these three community or communities, how many of these people will actually be willing to contribute to your campaign. And then last but not least, you know, when you make this model, you might end up looking at the numbers and you'll be like, damn, like I have just a couple of thousand people, you know, it's going to be very hard, you know, for me to reach my goal. But you must keep in consideration that, you know, there are agencies and other communities that can, that can help you. And there's also one fourth factor, which it's always important to consider, but you'd better not consider it because it might not happen, which is what I call the virality factor. 
for example, with the Scribit campaign, you know, we have followed this path. We have we started from a wonderful community at number one. We already started from a wonderful, very big community where we had a strong credibility. And number two, we had a strong credibility with Kickstarter. And at number three, we were working with a wonderful uh, agency that was helping us, you know, to expand our reach to people that never contributed to any Kickstarter or, or Indiegogo campaign. But on top of that, we have had what I call the variety factor. You know, we have had thousands of people that just ended up talking about us because they were excited by what we did. And so there wasn't any marketing, direct marketing effort related to bringing them to, to pledge to our campaign. They just came because they loved it. And that's, you know, when you have one, two, three, these three communities aligned, plus this fourth factor, which is a viral factor working well, well, at that point you can end up having, you know, a million dollar campaign. But again, the fourth factor, you really can't account for it because it might not happen. Um, currently, um, I see that crowdfunding uh, movement became more diverse. We can see that uh, there's a uh, niche platform focused on healthcare. Uh, I believe there are more diverse uh, niche focused platforms maybe in creative work. Based on your experience, which key tendencies you could mention uh, over the period you involved in crowdfunding? How did it change uh, over five, seven years? How is difficult was uh, back to your experience and how is difficult to get uh, to get crowdfunding nowadays in 2020? Yeah, yeah, I think um, so at the very beginning, of crowdfunding when we saw the first incredible stories of people, you know, just shooting a simple video, showcasing an idea and who ended up like raising millions of dollars, you know, that happened. That was kind of, that was at the beginning of the crowdfunding movement. And those were incredible stories to be honest. And that, those were the stories that got me super involved about crowdfunding. That has changed in my opinion, in the sense that, as I said earlier, the, the platforms themselves, Indiegogo first and Kickstarter, you know, now if you browse through the projects they have, the level of quality of the projects has been increasing and increasing and increasing and increasing. So it's, it's uncommon to find like literally one guy or like one girl with an idea, you know, just talking in front of a laptop and then who, that uh, ended up raising, you know, millions of dollars. That That is sort of like not happening that much anymore. When you look at a campaign, you know, campaigns are structured, they have a brand, they have a strategy, they have a community already, and so on. So that, this is what kind of like what I, what I believe that changed a little bit. Uh, and that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, these more these smaller platforms, but like with a, with a, with a tighter focus on, on certain verticals are, are, are boarding. Because, you know, basically in the last 10 years, crowdfunding has proven to be an industry, an incredibly interesting and exciting way to raise money, to raise funds and to move concepts from the concept stage into into potential real business stage. Uh, and it proven to be an industry that makes sense, that like needs to exist because and I can, you know, I see it from, from my perspective, like there are so many startups and so many individuals and so many also big companies and corporates like exploring crowdfunding to fund their projects because because it's cool and it, it can you know be for a private venture or it can also be for, for example, as they did recently here to fund a hospital because of the emergency. So crowdfunding is definitely a thing that, deser that deserves a place in the world. And this all happened to, thanks to you know, the technological revolution of the last 10 years, thanks to the internet. But, uh, but yeah, but you know, when an industry happens, you know, first you have a couple of players that you know, take place, that take the lead. And in this case, we're talking about Kickstarter and Indiegogo, but then as the industry you know, spreads out and involves more and more people, you will have smaller actors starting you know, to, to, to basically build their space, which has you know, perhaps a tighter focus you know, on, on, some, on some industry. And so it's responding to a clearer and, and tighter value proposition. So for example, if I'm passionate about biotech, for example, I would love to be on a crowdfunding platform about biotech projects because I know that there I will find only the top projects which are part of that industry. So that's what I believe is happening. Like there's been a shift from basically, you know, sort of like the idea of crowdfunding as a as 
as an independent, as as approach of independent creators who just like end up with their projects there and then raise millions into something which is more professional, more business. So you have companies doing crowdfunding, but then it's it, it you know it's so clear at this point that crowdfunding is a thing, is an industry that deserves a place in the world. That now smaller players are are happening and smaller players are creating their own small community who are there because they believe in that specific industry. And now let's talk about robotics, learning and creativity. Over our talk, you mentioned your work on Scribit several times. And now I would love to ask you uh, what exactly you are doing. You position yourself as a world first write and erase robot. So tell us about this work, your, uh, your mission, your innovation, what you would love to bring to the market in, in your personal role as a person with experience in this field, so what you would love to bring uh, as a, a person with team? Sure. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll run you real quick through the story. So basically it was uh, 2018, early 2018, I was working at uh, with Remedy, which I still am, but just a percent of my time, because now Remedy has had a shift towards healthcare. I can even tell you about that, but it might, you know, maybe in another interview. Uh, but um, basically, one of my co-founders at Remedi was involved by Carlo Ratti, who is um, a quite famous architect from from Italy, who's also a professor at MIT in Boston. He was involved uh, in the project uh, of Scribit because uh, Carlo had this idea of creating a vertical plotter that could have been used by anyone in their home, at their office, or you know, anywhere in their life. Um, so he first called this, uh, this other Andrea, uh, who's one of my co-founders at, at Remedy, to basically bring that concept and start creating the first prototypes. They did, and once they did, they, you know, they were like, okay, so what should we do? How can we you know, fund this, uh, this project? And so the crowdfunding idea came up. And so that's when they called me and I joined the team and, uh, you know, we co-founded the company at that point. And so I have taken care about the whole crowdfunding campaign from the very beginning, which ended up raising $2.5 million. So it has been a wonderful success. And, uh, and then after the campaign, you know, after delivering the, the first 8,000 units, you know, now we have moved into the real world. So now I'm leading all the marketing and, uh, and business development efforts at Scribit. So I lead from everything that involves from digital ads into website development, into looking for partners and also distributors and retail stores and so on. One of the greatest milestones we achieved right before this whole uh, unfortunately, coronavirus issue, we were at the MoMA design stores in New York. So uh, we have had the shop windows of the MoMA design stores completely decorated with the script for more than one month. That was a wonderful achievement for, 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 for us and for, and for the whole team. And so that, that's what I do. That's what I do here at Scribit. Um, in terms of what Scribit is, so um, yeah, so the idea, you know, started from, from, from the concept of the robot itself, from the idea of this vertical plotter. You know, the vertical plotter wasn't anything new as a concept. You already had plenty of videos on, on YouTube of people working with a vertical plotter, but the technology itself wasn't something replicable on an industrial scale and definitely wasn't something that like, you know, a common individual would have been able to install in their home. So starting from there, then we, then the real mission of Scribit and the real vision of Scribit is really one of the reasons why I fell in love with this project is the fact that like Scribit's vision and Remedy's vision have something strongly in common, which is about creativity. I dedicated my entire career, uh, you know, creating mediums for people to express their creativity and to do it, you know, in the easiest way possible and to give access to creative expression, perhaps to people that, you know, never had the opportunity to do it, to do so. Because I still remember the first time I uh, felt um, the feeling of creating something when I was 10 years old. And it was through a video game that allowed me to make music. And, and that memory will never go away. And that was literally, you know, my peak of happiness that then, you know, has given me a north for my entire life and my entire career. And, and so that, that's my personal mission. And that's why Scribit's vision and Scribit's mission really aligns with mine. Because Scribit is, in the end, 
bringing you home or at your office a tool that allows you to express yourself because in the end the the script is just it's just a medium it's just a medium for you to have access to tons of content drawings of any sort from independent artists from galleries around the world or even content that you make from yourself you can take a picture convert it into lines and have it drawn on your wall you just have to like go through our instagram profile and you will see how many interesting things happen every day within our community and that's in the end what we do you know we i personally i strongly believe that creativity can bring joy uh, a little bit of more of creativity into our everyday life can make us a little bit happier as a species and that's what we do in script with script in the end we give you access to a tool that gives you access to an ecosystem of content that allows you to express yourself and that's 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 the vision where everything started from and that's why i strongly believe that this aligns with what i believe to be sort of my mission in my in my career uh, you mentioned how creativity can bring joy to uh, people's lives. So I would like to ask you, since you've been involved in working on the physical device and now you work in robotics field, there is an opinion that the best way to learn how to code is to try to create something. And while working on this thing, you learn some languages because it's just practical exp uh, expression of his work. Uh, based on your experience of your team, do you feel that it's a closer to the truth? You mean like just go there and try to do stuff? Yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's kind of like what I have been doing for my entire career. I just wanted to do something and I tried and I tried and I tried and I tried up to a point that I got you know, where I felt that it was decent at that. And then perhaps I even became quite good. And uh, and that's kind of like how things go. But with this being said, I believe that at some point, like the best approach to me to a new method, like for example, to coding, to coding or like to, to anything else, I think you want to start by basically, you know, uh, bumping your head onto a wall. So I would start by doing something and realizing which are my limits, realizing uh, that I don't know anything and try to do something and again, like, you know, get stuck. And as soon as I get to a point that I get, you know, slightly familiar with the matter, then I would start to have to do something which feels more academic. Because when you started by, you know, moving the first steps by yourself, then if there's someone or, you know, some classes or just reading a book that is sort of like helping you uh, mm, solidify the first touch you had, like the first peels of knowledge you had, I think that's the best approach to go for. Because when you're learning from people that already went through what you went through, then of course like this brings you an incredible advantage when it comes like to then for example make take choices in in that new specific domain i don't know if this is clear but like what i would do basically is you know i would start by doing something and maybe doing it wrong up to the point that like i get to learn some like basic things but then i would move on to something which feels a little bit more academic perhaps a little bit more boring but helps me to then solidify the impressions I had in my in my first in my first contact with the matter. And finally, since you're a serial uh, tech inventor involved in creative field, what is your advice in 2020 for people who would love to start to create something, maybe in creative field, maybe in related field, uh, going maybe crowdfunding or bootstrapping who are limited in resources and the whole situation is a pretty limited due to coronavirus. So uh, what is your advice for them in order to inspire them to create? Sure. Yeah, I have to be honest, completely honest. It's a very hard time and uh, it's very hard, like looking at the next year, you know, um, we must be very sincere and honest with, with ourselves and say, you know, it's going to be tough. Let's be honest. You know, it's, it's economically speaking, it's not going to be easy for, for anyone because, you know, pretty much all countries will have bigger issues to face for the next, say, 10 months, at least before, you know, we can we can see a shift in focus back to, you know, cool and innovative stuff as we were used to. But on the other hand, like my my advice would be. 
Use the time that you have now to learn. That's what I'm doing. You know, the fact that we have been locked down, you know, we might go through other lockdowns. It might happen. You know, let's, let's keep this in mind. You know, it's, it's not over. It might happen. We might spend much more time at home in general than what we were used to. And so I would you really invest this time at learning stuff. All of us has some matter that resonates with them, you know, something that you feel that you are passionate about, but you never had the time to dig into it. You never had the time to start learning about it. I would really try to clean up my mind one second, to move away from all the disorder, from all the chaos and think like, what is the one thing that if I could choose, I would like to learn a little bit about. So get that one. And start learning, start a process. Like there are so many resources available on the internet which are completely free, which are available for you on your laptop or, or your phone. And start learning, start learning and use those like stimulations that will come from that process to, you know, perhaps like, I don't know, maybe re reinventing, reinventing your career or like just taking a different choice in your, in your, in your, in your life or perhaps like staying the same, but like, I would definitely use the, 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 the spare time, the, the more free time we have to learn stuff. I know it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a banal advice. I know that like many people are giving this advice, but I think in the end, this is the truth. And ultimately, if you have a project, if there's something that you really want to do, I think it's the best moment for doing crowdfunding in the sense that, you know, I believe that the market of VCs, in investment firms in general and banks are gonna go through a hard time, mostly for investing investing in innovative innovative startups, which are not necessarily you know related to helping humanity now. But crowdfunding is not that. Like you know, finding a thousand people that believe in your project is relatively easy if you're good at presenting your project. So crowdfunding is definitely a very good tool now for perhaps like you know giving some fuel to your creativity and to the idea that you have always been thinking about.